Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A big story this week out of the manufacturing industry, General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union have finally struck a proposed agreement to end a month-long strike of about 46,000 GM union workers at 55 GM facilities in 10 states. One of the last sticking points that had been going on in these negotiations were commitments by GM to build vehicles in U.S. plants. There was four U.S. plants in the United States that had either slowed down production or closed altogether. For more on this story, we spoke to Phoebe Wall-Howard. She's the automotive reporter for the Detroit Free Press. She was on the picket lines with striking workers And she talks to us about details of the proposed agreement and how those workers felt about these latest developments. We hear that the agreement will include pay raises, a ratification bonus of more than $9,000, promises by General Motors to invest several billion dollars in U.S. factories over the next four years, and most importantly, a path for temporary workers to become permanent. So they're the ones who work side by side, other workers for half the wage and few benefits. I had seen that temporary workers would become permanent after three years of uninterrupted work. I think that might have been shortened, that timeline. Though one of the other things that was a sticking point was product allocation commitments by GM to build vehicles in U.S. plants. And we know that there was about four plants in particular that production had slowed down or stopped altogether. Yes. In fact, we're hearing preliminary reports that as this unfolds, there are confidential discussions now. The local unions are getting word of when they'll get the small print, but that some products could possibly come back to the U.S. from other places. I think in particular, Detroit Hamtrak and Lordstown Assembly in Ohio were two where they were looking for different things to build there. One would be building an electric pickup truck. The other one would be building uh, battery cells. So that was what they were trying to get done in those. General Motors has to have flexibility. I mean, they have to be able to sell what they build. So I think they're doing a detailed analysis on this. And again, they've got some high profit stuff being built outside the U.S. And so they do have flexibility. But those discussions are very intense. And the UAW is optimistic. What are some of the costs that have been going around with this? Some reports are saying that GM was losing $450 million a week. I think they might have totaled so far been about $2 billion that they've lost. What do we know about how much this is costing everybody? Those are accurate ballpark figures. And yeah, well over a billion dollars. Obviously, this has hit workers. If you could imagine a full-time salary, if you're earning, let's say, $60,000 a year, you work full-time, and then you're going down to $275 a week. Obviously, that's a big drop. But the biggest issue that we're hearing is that local taxes and federal taxes have been hammered. So you've got states like Michigan, Ohio, Maryland, Texas, and others that are not getting tax revenue. That's the biggest, most shocking impact here that people don't realize. State governments have taken a tremendous loss, and in fact, the federal government. So this is profits, this is tax revenue, and obviously local sales. So that's all being tallied right now and ongoing. So I've also heard that there's a big meeting where a lot of the heads are going to be deciding if they want to go through with this proposed plan. But even then, the strike 
might not end immediately. The union officers and regional directors need to get together and vote and factory level leaders need to vote and agree to all this stuff. So there still could be some time before all this is hammered out. In addition, you have janitorial workers for Aramark that actually do the work in GM plants in various locations. They went out on strike a day earlier, and these GM workers said, we will cross you once, we will not cross you again. So when I was on the strike line covering that, I mean, you had grown men in tears and said that violated everything they believed in, but by contract, they had to do so. So currently, they're talking about resolution for the strike affecting 46,000 General Motors workers, but there are others that are still out, and they have said they will not go back until that's resolved. So we're watching and waiting to see the janitorial workers. The plants actually cannot run without the cleanup staff. It's not like your school janitors. Phoebe, you've been out on the picket lines with the workers themselves. As we're doing this interview, you stepped inside briefly just to do this with us. Thank you for that. Tell us what the workers themselves are feeling now. I know it's been a month that this strike has been going on. And how are they feeling about these proposed agreements now? Cautiously optimistic. The workers are saying that they really want this to happen. But the first thing they said to me, a number of them when I came out on the strike line, and there's very little press. So one union hall on this block represents five thousand workers. The one next door, 2,000, they're all right here. And what they've said is we will stay out through Thanksgiving. We will stay out till Christmas. We do not want to go back until we feel good about the proposal. They also feel like the top negotiator for the workers is a working man. They say that over and over again. He's not the kind of union leader that has a driver and all the things that you hear. He's a working man who believes in the priorities of these guys and these women. So in terms of the feeling out here, it's cold. It's rainy. There are huge 55-gallon drums filled with wood, and the smoke burns your eyes, and it's so cold. They're all gathered around, but they are out there. People are coming and buying diapers and dropping them off. The young families, that's temporary workers. So you have families taking their strike checks. a week. And they're stocking up on supplies for young families. I was out and they were doing giveaway boxes of food and potatoes and things like that. But the small businesses are delivering meals and the nurses from that local hospital are delivering coffee around the clock. Phoebe Wall Howard, automotive reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A fun space story that developed this week. Virgin Galactic has unveiled the jumpsuits that space tourists will be wearing on their flights to the edge of space. These new suits are made by Under Armour and are included in the $250,000 price tag for the flight. Reports say that the first suit for Sir Richard Branson was completed last week and it took 10 people five days to construct it. The space trip itself will last about 90 minutes from takeoff to its gliding landing and the most exciting part of weightlessness will only last between five and eight minutes. For more on the story, we spoke to Michael Sheets. He's the space reporter at CNBC. They are a little bit like jumpsuits. They're spacesuits in the sense that they are suits that folks will wear as they take their trips to the edge of space. And it's actually uh, this collection that Virgin Galactic unveiled is actually the suit itself that people wear, and then a training suit, footwear, and then even a limited edition jacket. So there's a number of little pieces in this collection. Both Kevin Plank, the CEO of Under Armour, as well as Richard Branson, were really excited to show us the boots that they are wearing. They gave us a really cool close-up look at these crazy futuristic high-tech looking boots. And all of it together is made of uh, multiple different Under Armour technologies. 
some of them that they've developed specifically for Virgin Galactic and then, then we'll be rolling out to the rest of the Under Armour lines in the, in the coming years. The boots specifically do look pretty cool. They're slip-on boots. They said that the material used for those boots will show up in shoes for football players, but those boots do look cool. And the people that are going to be going up into space on Virgin Galactic, the tickets are about $250,000. These suits and the boots and everything is all rolled up into that price, right? This collection, although it was developed after the 600-some astronauts that have bought tickets so far, these will be included. These are all kind of pro bono as a part of the experience. Virgin Galactic really emphasizes a lot on these astronauts, even though the experience may last only a few minutes at the edge of space, that the entire training regimen, which lasts about three days, and then the flight experience itself, that it's all this really amazing, mind-blowing trip. Tell us about Under Armour's involvement in this. This is more of a commitment for them to performance sportswear, I guess. The partnership was unveiled back in January, but Kevin Plank explained to us that this suit was really to take some of their technologies. They had one that's called a salient yarn that helps muscles recover and uses infrared heat to recover more quickly after exercise. And they took some of their cold gear, reactor linings so that people stay warm, and really designed it all together as a part of monetizing this future of apparel technology. And as Under Armour is looking to compete against the likes of Nike and Adidas and Reebok, they really wanted to have something that made them set apart. So you can actually buy Virgin Galactic branded t-shirts on Under Armour's website already. And Kevin Plank, the CEO, was explaining to us that there's a lot more he expects to come out of it because they're certainly going to be using this for marketing at the least. And you got to love Sir Richard Branson in the ranks of other big guys like Elon Musk and just big personalities, all that stuff. You know, when he was talking about these suits, he says, every single person who goes into space will be delighted with it. I think the whole experience of going into space should be sexy good on them for making these things. They do look great. This is all going to start next year. They hope they're doing a lot of final testing. Tell us a little bit about that. So they're in those last stages of testing. They have a couple last test flights that they're going to do. They just moved their operations from their testing facility in the Mojave Desert in California. And they're moving all of those operations down to the spaceport in New Mexico called Spaceport America, where they'll begin the commercial flights. So they want to make sure everything's set. They're going to do a couple last test flights. Richard Branson told me he's going to be on the first one. He hasn't told us, though, who's going with him. He said somebody. So it sounds like there's one person he specifically has in mind. But we'll be finding out more in, in the coming months as they get closer to beginning operations. And this is a company that looks to have tens of millions of dollars in revenue as soon as 2023. The company is going to go public in the coming weeks as a part of this new merger from Chamath Palabatia. And that's all going to be happening all at the same time. So it's a very busy company at this point. Finally, just tell us about the trip itself. I think there's about 600 people that have already paid and they're waiting for their opportunity to go up. They say that the whole trip's going to last about 90 minutes from takeoff to their gliding landing. What are they going to expect once they take off and, and get back down? I spoke to the chief astronaut trainer, Beth Moses, about this earlier, and she explained her whole experience because she was the first passenger that they ever took up on one of these trips. And she explained how, you know, you're really strapped in. You're just kind of gliding along underneath just a normal jet-powered aircraft. And then the rocket ship is just dropped from that aircraft at about 40,000 feet. It fires up its motor. It accelerates to Mach 3, three times the speed of sound, and just goes straight vertical up into the sky. 
and it does this slow somersault in the air as it flips at the edge of space. And that's where you experience microgravity for about five to eight minutes or so, depending on how high it gets pushed. And they float out there for a little while and it does this backflip and comes back down. And like you said, just glides in for a landing, just like a normal aircraft. So like you said, that whole experience is about an hour and a half, but the real exciting, crazy part of the edge of the Earth's atmosphere is about five to eight minutes. Michael Sheets, space reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar, for having me on. Finally for this week, my favorite story. There's an entire online marketplace that has sprung up where people put Cheetos that look like things up for sale, sometimes for hundreds and thousands of dollars. After the Harambe Cheetos sold for $100,000 and Frito-Lay held a competition itself for people to submit photos of Cheetos that look like things in the hopes that they could win $50,000, people have been endlessly trying to make money off of these cheesy puffs. For more on this story, we spoke to Tova Danovich. She's a journalist and contributor to TheOutline.com, and we talked about the collectible Cheetos market. Basically, when you get a bag of Cheetos, they're all kind of funny shapes. They're made from extruded corn and various other ingredients. So they each come out looking pretty unique. And sometimes people casually between the bag and their mouth stop and look at the Cheeto that they're holding. And they're like, wow, this looks like an elephant. This looks like a man walking. This looks like a Sasquatch or a cartoon character. I always get the one that just looks like a caveman club. I think that's, that's yeah. the closest thing I could that's come. That's a classic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, of course, in this day and age, you can sell your services on TaskRabbit, something like that, sell everything you own on the internet. So people find these Cheetos and they're like, I'm going to sell this on eBay. Let's see what money I can get. And the thing that's really interesting about it is that it's not just some guy trying to sell his Cheeto for a couple of dollars, when you go to ebay.com, the Cheetos that you find for sale are often listed for a buy it now price of anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to in the thousands, which is what really makes the story unique. (laughs) And that's also the point where people are going, oh my God, what is wrong with people? Obviously, everybody knows (laughs) the Harambe Cheeto. That one went on eBay. It ended up selling for $100,000. We'll get into that in a little minute because there's some specific things to know about that one. But I know you were mentioning some of the price of these, but what kind of shapes and what are people trying to sell? Uh, There's a fluffy baby penguin. What other ones are, are people trying to sell there? There are so many animals. I think that's probably the most common shape that you find. But then you also get people that are trying to be a little zeitgeisty with their Cheeto marketing. (laughs) You know, you got to get that hook that's with the time. So you'll see Fortnite dancers sometimes or, you know, characters from SpongeBob. I feel like probably when the next Star Wars movie comes out again, (laughs) there have to be some Darth Vader's on the horizon. But the more people can kind of integrate pop culture into their Cheeto, I guess the more they think it will sell. And maybe they're right. Who knows? And so how did this whole craze get started? From looking through your article, it seemed like there was two main things. One, there was a guy who started an Instagram page for cheese puffs that look like things, something like that. And then Mm -hmm. the other was when Frito-Lay actually held a contest for people to send in submissions and you could actually win money at that point. So Andy, who is behind at Cheese Curls of Instagram, kind of started it off on a bit of a whim. Similar story to basically everyone I talked to where he was just eating a Cheeto one day, noticed it looked like something. And I think it was a friend of his or a family member that actually told him, hey, you should start an Instagram for these. (laughs) And he is 
so good at finding Cheetos that look like things. I, for researching this story, actually tried to go through a bag of Cheetos and find one that looked like anything and had no luck at all. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so it's harder than it looks. I had a little bit more respect for the shaped Cheeto after this. But yeah, his account got really popular up to about 44,000 followers or so at its peak. And it was around that time that other people, I think, got encouraged to share their own Cheetos that looks like things. And Frito-Lay, who owns Cheeto, was like, let's get in on this. Let's do something with this. And so they did a pretty big very successful marketing campaign where if you posted your own Cheetos, submitted it, it had a possibility of going into a Cheetos museum, which they've since done both one in person for a limited time, kind of a pop-up, and then one that was just digital. And the winner got something like $50,000 who had the very best Cheeto, which really pushed the idea that Cheetos equal money (laughs) into the public consciousness. So the last thing, uh, because you spoke to a lot of people who are selling Cheetos. Who are the people that are selling them and who, if any, are buying them? And this also kind of leads us back into that Harambe Cheeto thing. So the Harambe Cheeto, as you mentioned earlier, reportedly sold for nearly $100,000. It was on the news everywhere because it's a crazy story. And part of the thing that's crazy about it is good on the person selling the Cheeto, but who in their right mind is spending $100,000 on the Cheeto. Nobody knows. And I wasn't able to get in contact with the seller, but I did find a reporter who mentioned that the seller of the Harambe Cheeto did not actually get the price that was listed. Um, And a funny thing I found out about eBay is that when you look at things that have sold in the past, it will give you the price that it was bidded for the winning bid, but that's not necessarily what someone paid. It would kind of be like if I tweeted at Sotheby's, you know, I'm going to pay a billion dollars for this work of art, but I obviously don't have it. And they listed the sold prices a billion dollars. So there's something a little bit odd and disingenuous about it, but it probably doesn't come up too much. So in the case of a lot of these Cheetos, it might say that it sold for $100,000 or $9,000 or even two hundred. dollars But in all likelihood, no one has ever paid that. And without speaking to anyone who has bought a Cheeto, it's hard to know if anyone is getting close to these prices out there. If you've ever spent money on a Cheeto, please let me know. But it doesn't stop the marketplace. People are constantly putting up Cheetos for resembling whatever to be sold for hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands. There's such a low barrier to entry that it's hard to think that it's really hurting anyone by putting up the Cheeto that they got in a $2 bag on eBay for free. If someone sells it, great. If they don't, no harm, no foul. However, it does inflate the market, I think, a little bit to have in the back of your head, well, this one was worth $100,000 and mine is great. And if those sellers aren't there, then really it's kind of this invisible Cheetos bubble that's just based on speculation, I guess. It's like the new gold rush of the digital age. (laughs) Tova Danovich, journalist and contributor to TheOutline.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been fun. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition.